You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. I hope that you could sing the words to that last song uh, experientially. I hope that you know for yourself that your debt has been paid. Um, I would like for you to join me this morning in Micah chapter 6, if you have your Bibles today. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's okay. You'll find the words up on the screen. Uh, If you would like to have a copy of the Word of God and don't have one, uh, we would be delighted to give you a copy of God's Word. And so I would be thrilled if you would uh, see us out in the foyer at the close of the service. We would love to give you uh, your own copy of God's Word. Uh, Before we go to our text this morning, uh, there are some things that I feel um, we need to talk about. Uh, This is not something that we do very often. There are some things that I need to talk to you about as your pastor. And I'm just going to tell you, these are things I don't want to talk about. I get to talk about a lot of stuff that I love to talk about. Um. But there's some things that uh, we need to address and that we need to be aware of as a church family. Griff alluded to some of these things last week in his message, which uh, I just want to say I'm so grateful for both Jace and Griff and their filling the pulpit in my absence. It's a delight to know that you've got ministry partners who can very capably uh, carry on. And uh, one of the, the good things about a pastor, any of us, being away is that it reveals to us that uh, the church is not dependent on me uh, to keep going, okay? It doesn't uh, center around any one of us. Uh, But uh, as you're well aware, there were some significant events that took place over the last couple of weeks. Um, Nationally, um, here in our own state, uh, obviously I mentioned that I was out in Lajitas in Big Bend, May the 18th through the 20th, uh, came home. Uh, had a day to get packed up and ready to go, and we left uh, for family vacation down in Galveston. I I knew uh, that on uh, the first day of our vacation, um, they were going to be releasing uh, a report, Um, and I'm referencing the uh, Sexual Abuse Task Force report. Um, I want to give you a little bit of history, and some of you uh, are are well aware of some of the issues that I'm going to address from these few moments. Some of you have been involved in Southern Baptist life for a long time. Uh, Others of you, uh, it's maybe totally foreign to you. And so I kind of want to bring you up to speed and hopefully give you a quick uh, sports center version uh, of some of the things that we definitely need to discuss. And I think it's important that you hear my perspective on these things. We are a part of um, what I would call a family of churches. Um, We're often referred to as a denomination when in fact we are not technically a denomination. We do not have a denominational hierarchy. The Southern Baptist Convention actually works from the bottom up. And so uh, while we have an executive committee uh, that offices in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, they simply represent us, basically. And they are charged with carrying out the will of the messengers uh, who meet together annually uh, at our Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and so uh, there are paid staff involved in that. There's executive committee staff who, who work there. That is their job. They full-time carry on the, uh, the different um, uh, ministries and all the practical aspects of uh, what is often described as the largest 
Protestant denomination in the world, for whatever that's worth. Um, There are some 47,000 Southern Baptist churches. And so I need you to be aware that we are a part of uh, a cooperation of churches. Um, But you've got to know, just like any family, we got some weird cousins. Uh, We just do. Um, uh, Some with whom we would disagree on some things. Uh, mainly issues of emphasis and even practice sometimes, the way we go about ministry and things like that. And that's okay. That's one of the beauties of our Southern Baptist family. Um, But on the essentials, uh, we are saying when we come together in cooperation, we can fundamentally agree on these things and we can work together for the sake of the gospel. So that's our big tent family. And if you would like more clarification on that and would like to to know more about that. I preached a series of messages a a few years ago called Hold Firm, where I uh, literally article by article unpacked what we call the Baptist faith and message, which kind of serves as our doctrinal statement. And it's the the umbrella under which we agree with our Southern Baptist family. Um, uh, There are some with whom we would find some fairly stark disagreement, okay? Um, And some, uh, in recent years, have been disfellowshipped from our family for uh, things that we have determined as a family of churches to be so egregious, uh, so violating to our common beliefs that we can't continue to cooperate, okay? And so it's not the kind of family where it's just like, oh, anybody and everybody, come on in. It doesn't matter what you believe about salvation or the Bible or anything like that. It's not like that, okay? Um, but, But we're different. I mean, some of you have been to enough churches that you know things are just done a little differently here and there and everywhere and, and those kind of things. So that's our big uh, SBC family, you might say. Um, and we, we are able, um, by God's grace, to do a lot together. Uh, and I'll just share with you one brief snapshot of one of the reasons that I'm proud to be a part of the Southern Baptist family. Uh, our International Mission Board, uh, which uh, I, I'm not sure how many missionaries we currently fund, um, on the foreign fields, um, but uh, they uh, are, are working hard, and we are a sending church for one of those families, and we have close ties and connections with other families. There's a former youth pastor from this church who now serves in West Africa, and uh, I was able to lead a team of people over in 2017 to work with uh, what's called a cluster of our missionaries in West Africa, and so Uh, It's very much a part of our DNA, of who we are, and our mission, and uh, the advancement of the gospel through what we do here. And so that's that's our Southern Baptist family. And then we have the North American Mission Board as well that that we support and sponsor through the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And when you see, uh, if you watched any of the news reports in Uvalde uh, over the last uh, week or two, you probably saw some people in yellow vests and yellow hats. Those are Southern Baptist disaster relief workers and chaplains and those kind of things. And, and we are a part of that. But the, the International Mission Board puts out two reports every year fundamentally. One is uh, what you would probably call the, the state of evangelical Christianity worldwide. It kind of tells us how the gospel essentially is advancing around the world. And then they give a little more specific report on the things that God is doing through our international mission board. And so I'll just share some, uh, with you some of those highlights. And you can find this online at their website, imb.org, if you want to dig a little deeper and see some of the things that God is doing. But in 2021, these are um, ministry numbers based on calendar year 2021, there were 93 new people groups and places engaged. That is places where prior to 
uh, that engagement, there was little, if any, gospel engagement. 93. And they maintain a, a working list of unreached people groups all the time. And we're trying to reach out into uh, the, the, the world, literally. Uh, in that, 592,408 heard gospel presentations, as best we can tell. 495,550 were given opportunities to respond. 176,795 came to faith in Jesus Christ. 107,701 were baptized, follow the Lord in believers' baptism. There were 22,744 new churches planted and established worldwide through the International Mission Board. 182,112 received leadership training. We got to be a part of that. When you give through the general uh, fund, uh, you give just an undesignated gift to, uh, through First Baptist Church Van Alstine, you are supporting that work, among many other things, seminary training for seminary students, and our church has been the beneficiary of that in many respects, and so there are a lot of things happening. That's just a snapshot of what God's been doing through just the International Mission Board. That's not uh, taking into consideration the North American Mission Board and what God is doing through our local churches, like right here in Van Alstine, Texas, and so we celebrate those things, and, and it makes sense for us to celebrate those in many respects as our victories, and that's great. But here's the thing. We can't be people of integrity if we're going to celebrate our victories, but we're not going to own our failures. And we've failed. We have failed. And now a lot of people have differing opinions about corporate repentance and corporate lamenting and all of those sorts of things. I'm not suggesting that anyone here individually, personally, directly has been involved in any form of sexual abuse whatsoever. That's not what I'm saying. But I am telling you, and I, you need to know how this kind of came about. So when our convention of churches, our family of churches met together last year in Birmingham, Alabama... There have been rumblings of these things for a number of years. There have been patterns of uh, abuse victims, people who had come forward uh, telling their story and those kind of things. They had been dismissed. They had been uh, mistreated. They had been uh, further abused in various ways. There have been these patterns of things happening uh, over a number of years that uh, on, in some form or another were known. Okay, it had been coming to light more and more. There was, some of you are aware of a Houston Chronicle article that came out uh, a year or two ago that kind of unveiled a lot of this kind of stuff. And so in light of all of that, the messengers at last year's annual meeting voted overwhelmingly to establish a sexual abuse task force and to hire a third-party organization made up of attorneys and investigators and all of those things to deeply investigate these charges and these issues. And they did just that. Uh, one of the things that had to be decided uh, by the messengers and, and by the executive committee actually later was to waive attorney-client privilege. They felt that the only way that these things could really be brought to light in the way that they needed to was to do away with attorney-client privilege. And that was a hotly debated issue. But thankfully, we had leadership in place, some in place, some on that executive committee who felt strongly enough about eradicating this cancer of abuse in any form 
We had to take a radical approach to this. And there were well-meaning people on both sides of that issue, people who were concerned about the legal ramifications of waiving attorney and client privilege and all of those sorts of things. But in the long run, it's my opinion that we did the right thing. And so on May the 22nd, the Sexual Abuse Task Force report came out. 288 pages worth of rather detailed information. Some of you may have accessed it. You may have read it. Uh, I did not intend to read it. What I wanted to do in Galveston was bury my head in the sand and have nothing to do with it. I couldn't do that. Immediately, I'm getting text messages from pastor friends and others within our family of churches saying, hey, what, what, what are you doing with this? What are you, what are you saying about this at your church? What, how, how do we handle that? You know, all of these sorts of things. And so... Um, as I read through that, I did not read every word. Some of it was kind of a, a recapping of our structure and things of that nature that I'm well aware of. But I can tell you that of those 288 pages, I read every pertinent page and every pertinent bit of information. And it was hard. It was hard. There's nothing fun about it. It made me angry. It made me really angry. It made me grieve. It made me frustrated. I, I, I was dealing with a lot of different emotions as I read the words of that 288-page report. And then a few days later, our executive committee made the decision, I think very wisely, to release a list that that report revealed had actually been kept by uh, members of our executive committee leadership there of some 700 names of credibly charged or convicted abusers. Now, I would like to sit here and tell you this morning that none of the names on that list hit close to home, but that's not true. I have personally met or had lunch or been in meetings with members, with people who are on that list. Some of you are well aware that there is a former staff member from this church who's on that list. And I'll tell you that the offenses uh, and the charges that have been brought against that individual, the conviction that was, was leveled and all that stuff was not related to anything that happened here. Okay, there's been due diligence spent in that and everything. But some of you who've been here a while, if I said the name, you would know exactly who I'm talking about. So it hits really close to home. And while I would love to tell you that nothing like some of these charges could ever happen here, it would be foolish for me to tell you that. And it would put us, as leadership, it would put us as a church family in a very bad position if that's, if that's where we stood. Because it can happen here. It can happen here. And I'll just say this, if, if you're one who finds yourself a bit discouraged and you're thinking, man, should we just pull away from this whole family of churches and all of these different things? I, 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 there may be a point in time where that becomes necessary. I'm, I'm, I'm praying that that's not the case. And I'm going to challenge you in just a moment to pray about some things very specifically as it re relates to that. But you've got to know and understand this. Any human institution, any human structure is made up of sinful people. And sinful people do sinful things. Broken, sinful people do stupid things. Your pastor included. And it's only by the grace of God that my name's not on that list. And so I don't want us to, in any way, 
um, fluff our feathers of pride as if that could never happen here, because it could. And so there are policies in place, and there are things that we're always looking at and analyzing. We've been to trainings, and we've, we've been trained on what the grooming process looks like, for example, and a lot of different things that you, you don't want to sit through. I, I've sat with leaders from our church, and when we leave those kinds of events, you're just like, I just want to go home and take a shower. This is just disgusting. But it's the world in which we live. Even this last week, there was a mentally unstable person who came into the church needing some assistance, and this person was obviously mentally unstable to me and, and kind of aggressive and confrontational, so I made sure that I stayed in the sanctuary over there. You know why? Because I know there's a camera in the back of the room. That's the world in which we live, y'all. I don't like to have to talk about these things. And so what I'm doing now is I'm asking you, I'm asking you to pray specifically for those who will gather in Anaheim, California here in a couple of weeks for the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. I will not be among them. I have a number of friends, some from local churches that are part of our local family of churches, our Grace and Baptist Association. We are talking. We're, uh, there are some recommendations that have been made from the Sexual Abuse Task Force, things that need to be done, and you can understand that it's really complex. Okay, for a long time, and I've been one who's been saying, there's got to be some kind of a national database where you can go back and, I, I mean, because what happens many times is you have an abuser who, uh, you know, they, they go on to another church somewhere else in another state or whatever, and you get the, it's just, it's mind-boggling to think that this is possible in the world in which we live. And it gets really complex because of uh, the, the issue of a false accusation, for example. And any of us know that a false accusation could be just as damaging as, as sexual abuse itself in many cases. And so there, there are a lot of things to consider there. But there are ways, there are ways to take care of this. I'm not suggesting it's an easy fix. I'm not suggesting it's something that's going to happen in the next few months or even the next few years for that matter. But there are hurting people out there who've been abused and are, are, are still not being heard. And, and, and we have failed. We failed. And so I want to do everything that I can. You've got to understand, I am, I am a grassroots guy, okay? I am not an insider in the Southern Baptist Convention. I have very little, if any, influence whatsoever. I'm involved in our local association of churches, 63 churches in the Grayson Baptist Association. I'm on the leadership team there. And so... That's where I interact the most. I've got friends that do work at the state convention and those sorts of things. And so I'm doing everything I can to have my voice heard and those kinds of things. But we need to pray that this serious, serious biblical action be taken at our next convention. And pray that God would give the messengers and the leadership and, and others that are involved in all of these things the, the courage to move forward in this and getting this right and bringing about healing by, by, by the gospel. It's a distraction from our gospel witness. It does harm to our gospel witness. Um, I, I could just I could talk for a long time about this and. Um, and if you've got questions or you've got concerns or things you'd like to know more about, I can give you more detail than what's appropriate for me to share in this setting. But uh, just know uh, that we are paying close attention to this. Um, I, I'm in a season of lament for our family of churches. Um, I am taking a hard look in the mirror um, to just say, how, how, 
if, if an issue like this comes up and I have anything, that, how, will, how will that be dealt with? What will we do? Um, what policies are in place now? What, what procedures are we following to, to, to do everything we can to make certain that no one is abused in any way uh, under our charge? And so I'm just going to invite you now to pray with me about these matters. Uh, pray for those who will gather in Anaheim. Uh, pray that um, integrity be restored uh, and that God continue to do a work among our family of churches. Father, we come to you now just grieving for the things that have come to light in recent days. Lord, your word tells us that ultimately all wrong will come to light. And Lord, we've already studied here in the book of Micah that it is your desire to see people restored, to see wrongs rebuked. So Lord, I pray specifically for those who are in positions of leadership in our family of churches, that they would make wise decisions according to your word, that there would be no more effort to protect the institution over and above the welfare of any kind of abuse victim. Lord, I pray that there be a transparency. I pray that there be steps taken for healing and for hope and restoration. I pray that wrongs would be righted, that we would be a people who are committed to doing justice, as we're about to read in your word today. And God, it's our prayer that you would be glorified ultimately in all of this. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for indulging me for a few moments, especially those of you who are not part of the First Baptist family. You may not consider me your pastor, um, but at the same time, I think it's important for us to, to address some of those issues. This is week uh, six. Uh, in our sermon series uh, through the Old Testament book of Micah. Micah is one of the minor prophets who prophesied in a day when the nation of Israel uh, was in a state of moral decay. It was characterized by corruption and greed. It was a time when injustices were being committed, not unlike the day in which we live. The family unit disintegrating. Uh, kind of as a foundation for the series, I pointed out Mark Dever's uh, points he brings out three major themes here in the book of Micah in his work called The Message of the Old Testament. Uh, that as I mentioned in my prayer that God wants wrongs to be rebuked. God wants his people to be restored and he wants his character to be known. Through the acknowledgement of his supremacy, through the remembrance of his righteousness, and through the demonstration of his mercy. So we've been working our way steadily through uh, the book of Micah, kind of chapter by chapter, we've come now to what uh, many commentators consider the penultimate chapter of this book, of this prophecy. Um, I'm, again, so grateful for both Jason Griff and covering chapters 4 and 5, and as it would turn out, now we're coming back to judgment, okay? So um, th there was no drawing of straws or anything like that when we laid this series out, and it, uh, we were assigned these different texts. But at the same time, I want you to see how this ties in with some of the things we've just discussed, because um, in God's providence, he would have a pastor from North Carolina, from Biltmore Baptist Church, named Bruce Frank, 
appointed as the chairman of the sexual abuse task force. And in the first meeting that they conducted, that he conducted and they held, he pointed to Micah chapter 6, verse number 8. A verse that we're going to read in just a moment. And he stressed the importance of this team of people who've been appointed by current leadership. And I'm so thankful for our past president, J.D. Greer, who did so many things in taking us down the right path in this regard. He was highly criticized for that. After the Houston Chronicle story came out, he named names. And when people weren't willing to name names, that's a hard thing to do. Sometimes leadership is hard. So I'm thankful that in the midst of all this chaos and confusion and sinfulness, there have been people who have uh, in every way tried to do the right thing and press forward. And I don't want you to think that this is a, a, a widespread kind of thing across all of our churches. In fact, some are even kind of in a place right now where they're trying to minimize this. They're saying, of these 47,000 churches, look at how many cases. they're One case is too many. One case is too many. So let's not try to play games with the numbers or anything like that as if we can somehow take pride in that. We just got to get this right. So today in Micah chapter 6, he alternates back, as it were, to focus once again on the judgment of God as it relates to the sinfulness of his people. And in particular, the dominant picture in this chapter is that of a courtroom where God is prosecuting his lawsuit against his wayward people. And in today's text, we're going to see three aspects of this divine lawsuit. We're in the courtroom. God is pressing his case against his wayward people. And there are three parts to that. There's the indictment found in verses 1 through 5. It gets a little more specific in verses 9 through 12. This divine indictment, the charges that are brought. Then in verses 6 and 7, we have the response or the plea of the people. You see that in courtroom drama. How, you know, how do you plead? Uh, you see the plea of the people here. It's, it's not a good response, but it is their response to these divine charges. And then in verses 13 through 16, we have the verdict uh, of the heavenly judge as he hands down his sentence. And so the indictment, the plea, and the sentencing. And so let's look together at Micah chapter 6. We'll look at all 16 verses together uh, as we look at this sixth chapter of Micah. Hear what the Lord says. Arise. Plead your case before the mountains, and let the, hill, the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I, set, I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And it's as if Micah is sitting in the gallery there in the courtroom, and he jumps up at this point and says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod of him who appointed it. There's the biblical principle of hear and fear. 
here in fear. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied. There shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve. What you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Amri, and all the works of the house of Ahab. You have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Several years ago, I came across the story of a legal case in Washington, D.C., in which a young man was found guilty of a particular crime. And at sentencing, all parties uh, in this particular case felt that probation was an appropriate penalty. However, at the last minute, there was a computer algorithm called a criminal sentencing AI, artificial intelligence, uh, that deemed that this offender... Uh, was at high risk for future criminal activity. And so the prosecutor immediately took probation off the table, insisting uh, that this young man be sentenced to juvenile detention. Instead, be incarcerated. And when the young man's defense attorney looked into this algorithm and how it worked, uh, she discovered that there had been no judicial or scientific scrutiny actually applied to the criteria uh, that, uh, of the algorithm that was used. And so this criminal sentencing AI, uh, while it gave the appearance of this high-tech scientific recommendation, which would be free of human bias, uh, when the criteria was examined, it actually was discovered that there were all sorts of biases, all sorts of assumptions about the type of people most likely to break the law that was informing this whole process. And in the end, uh, the judge ruled the use of this a criminal sentencing AI out of bounds altogether. Uh, but presumably, and here's what's crazy about this, what made this computer program appealing was the thought that it provided complete objectivity. It took matters out of the hands of a fallible human judge and provided scientific objectivity. Of course, a computer program is only as good as the one who programs it, and therein is the problem. The fact is, even in the very best of earthly criminal justice systems, because it is implemented by fallible people, there are often tragic miscarriages of justice. If you do just a little bit of research, you'll discover that there are any number of people who have been falsely charged, falsely accused, and especially uh, with Uh, DNA evidence now being admissible in a court of law. And as that's come on, I mean, more and more, there have been these cases where there was mistaken identity and these sorts of things uh, only uncovered years later after someone had uh, served a significant time behind bars. So we refer to these stories as miscarriages of justice. I want you to notice here from Micah chapter 6, as we look first at God's indictment, that we are again in this courtroom and God himself is bringing the charges. It is the case of the Lord God, Yahweh versus the people. And in this courtroom, I want you to know that there is no possibility of a miscarriage of justice. 
What are the charges that God brings? Well, we see the language in verses 1 and 2. It says, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear you, mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. So here's that moment. It's like the doorbell rings. You open the door. The courier hands you an envelope and you have been served. You've been summoned to appear in court and it turns out you are the accused and you must come to the court to enter your plea. God has an indictment. He is serving against his people. And what is that? Well, in verse number three, we get to see the heart of God's case against his people. He says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. That's the issue. The people have grown weary of God. It's not that they've become tired of religious activity, as we're going to see in just a moment here. That's not really the concern. Micah's not wagging his finger at the congregation for not showing up often enough on Wednesday nights. That's not the problem. It's much worse than that. They've become fed up with God himself. They're tired of him. It's as if they were saying, we've heard it all before. It's just not doing it for me anymore. That's what they were saying. And yet in verses 4 and 5, the Lord reminds them all that he has done for them. And he points back to the Exodus, which is the great central act of salvation in the Old Testament. It's a beautiful picture of our own salvation, our own redemption. I brought you up from the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery, sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He reminds them of the wilderness journey that the people of Israel made when they came out of bondage. He reminds them of the conquest and their entry into the land of promise. Remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And You may remember the bit of the backstory there. Balak, the king of Moab, he hired the prophet Balaam to pronounce a curse upon Israel, but the Lord intervened. So that instead of cursing, all that Balaam could say were words of blessing. And eventually, the Lord gave victory over Moab to the hands of Israel at Shittim. Then when they came to the borders of the land of promise at Gilgal, you remember what happened there? The Lord parted the waters of the Jordan River as he had done for the generation before at the Red Sea so that the people would pass through on dry land. God is saying to them, look. Look, don't you see? Don't you remember? I have saved you again and again and again. And he calls them to remember. The word remember is such an important word in Scripture. And in this particular case especially, it does not imply that the people have sort of forgotten the details and needed to be reminded of their history. That's not what it means. Through the prophet Micah, God is calling the people to reappropriate for themselves the story of redemption, to enter back into the reality of redemption for themselves. You see how he speaks to them? To this generation of people that we've already discovered are facing Assyrian invasion and, and exile centuries after the exodus took place. He says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you. This is one of the reasons that we would say today that we need to continue to proclaim the gospel to ourselves. This is still God's invitation, his mighty work of redemption, not redemption from Egyptian slavery or from Moabite kings, but redemption from sin and death and hell by the cross of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we may reappropriate it and take hold of it and experience its blessed reality personally. That's the wonder of Micah's message. But God's people in Micah's day were having none of it. If you look down at verses 9 and 12, you see the fruit of this rebellion. 
And this rejection of the Lord and his redeeming grace, how did it manifest itself? Well, they basically became slaves to other things, to power, to position, to stuff. And we see what that does. It was Calvin who said that our hearts are fundamentally just little idol factories. And so here's this evidence of a wayward heart that rejected the Lord. What does it do? It says it turns instead to scant measures and wicked scales and bags of deceitful weights. It's filled with violence and lies and deception. Micah's reminding us of a principle that we probably all are aware of, but we often forget. And the principle is this. You serve what you love. You serve what you love. That's why the Bible continually tells us in one form or another, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Be careful what and whom, with whom you fall in love. Because out of the heart flows the issues of life, Scripture says. Be careful what you fall in love with. We often say it this way. Our, our passions our passions determine our priorities, and our priorities determine our path. I have found that people, myself included, will find a way to do what we really want to do and pursue that which we love the most. Your passions, those things that you love the most, that you prioritize, determine your priorities, and that ultimately determines your path. So what do we see here? These people were pursuing other things. Never satisfied with God's saving grace. So they turned to money and power and status instead. And God presents the evidence and he presses his case against them. The truth is our hearts are these continual idol factories. We turn aside in weariness from the ways of God, preferring other things. Other things. And then I want you to notice the people's plea. The people's plea. And notice this progression in verses 6 and 7. This is actually very alarming. It says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? And then notice what it says next. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Essentially, here's what they're doing. They're taking out their religious checkbook, as it were, and they're saying, okay, Lord, what's it going to take? Just tell us, what's it going to take to make all of this go away? I'll write the check right now. And they're treating God like one of the corrupt officials that they deal with every day who will take a bribe or a kickback. Only they think that the currency that God is interested in, do you see this, is some amount or measure of religious self-righteousness. Notice the escalating scale. How about it, God? I'll tell you what, God, how about an offering? A year-old calf, how about that? How does that sound to you? Will that do? No, okay, all right, let's, let's try uh, thousands of rams. How about 10,000 rivers of oil? Still not enough? You drive a hard bargain. And look at, at that, that last position again. It's, it's shocking, actually. They seamlessly slide from this, this kind of offerings that Moses commanded in the Torah, the kind of offerings that were characteristic to the kind of uh, offerings that were characteristic of pagan worship to the god Molech. How about if I offer up my firstborn child? They'll perform whichever rite they need to to be squared away with God so that they can get back to living life their way. They'll do almost anything, give almost anything. 
And it's shocking to see it here in black and white. But the truth is, this is the default setting of our hearts. Do you recognize yourself in any form here? I do. When my conscience stings and I feel the rebuke of God's holiness at my waywardness and my sinfulness, what's my first instinct? Well, I'll look around and I'll find some payment to make, some good work I can do that will offset my failure and relieve my conscience. I'm, I'm not really turning from sin to God. I'm, I'm trying to pay him off. That's not Christianity. That's paganism. If your God can be bribed so that he will leave you alone to live like the world lives, you're not a Christian and your God is not the God of Scripture. But that's what the people of Micah's generation were doing precisely. And again, it's as if Micah is sitting there in the courtroom, in the gallery, and it's as if he just can't keep quiet. And it's in that context that he says, God has already told you what is good. God has already told you what he wants from you. He has told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? God's not interested in any amount of religious performance if your heart remains unrepentant and cold toward him. God wants authenticity. He wants reality that shows up in the way that we live. That's what verse 8 is really saying. Hold on. Justice toward one another. Mishpat is the Hebrew word. It's, it's order rule. It, it reflects the way that God himself governs all things. God is just. The righteousness of God to be reflected. Righteousness in our dealings with one another. If our hearts are right with the Lord. And then there's kindness. Hesed is the word. You may see it translated as mercy or grace or loving kindness. It is how God treats his own covenant people. With hesed, with covenant love, with loving kindness. Stoops down, rescues them from bondage. Brings them into liberty by his grace. And there's this humble walk with God. Because we know we have no contribution of our own to make. We're bankrupt sinners without hope, except in his sovereign mercy and grace. So we cast ourselves upon him in humility. Depend on him. Lean on him. Walk with him. You see what Micah's doing to them? He's saying to them? He's saying, God's looking at your heart. God wants to know, are you real? It's, it's not about how religious you are. They're perfectly willing to go through any amount of religious performance if it will appease God and get him off their case. It's about whether you've really taken hold of the wonderful grace of God for yourself such that your heart begins to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God because he has loved you freely by his grace. And then we see in pretty clear terms here Finally, God's verdict. You see that in verses 13 through 16. And you've got to understand that the ancient covenant curses listed in places like Deuteronomy chapter 28. If God's people broke covenant with him, he would bring judgment upon them. That's exactly what Micah now says is going to befall them. He's going to strike them with grievous blow. Verse 13, famine will overtake them. The sword, crops will fail because... Notice what he says in verse 15. They walked in the counsels of Amri and have done the works of Ahab. Who are these people? 
Well, 1 Kings 25 says that King Amri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him until his son Ahab came along, and it's like the two of them were competing to outdo one another in wickedness. So 1 Kings 16.30 says this, And Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. The evil apple didn't fall far from the tree. Micah's point is, Israel is following the pattern of life set by these two kings known for their wickedness. To say in that day, your actions are very Ahab-like, or, oh, what do we got, an Omri here? I would have been saying something. I would have been saying something. So an unrepentant heart, a heart that will not embrace grace and plead guilty and cast itself on the mercy of Jesus Christ alone, a heart like that has nothing left but the judgment and the wrath of God. Let me close with this because I think there's a tragic irony in our text. If you noticed it in the plea of the people, as they hear God's indictment, they thought that even if they went to the lengths of sacrificing their own firstborn son, that perhaps that would be enough to satisfy God, to make him leave them alone, not realizing, of course, that in the gospel itself, God is the one who bears the curse. God is the one who pays the penalty of the broken covenant. He takes the curse upon himself and gives up his firstborn son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the cross of Calvary. There he dies like a covenant breaker, though he is holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. He dies the death that you and I deserve under the covenant wrath of God that we may go free. You see, the wonder of the gospel is not that we mustn't sin, and if somehow we do, we manage it, and then God will accept us. That's not the message. The gospel is that you and I are helplessly enslaved to sin. We cannot help ourselves through our own self-righteousness, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, has given his son to the cross for us and paid in full a debt that we owed. You think, well, this is just an ancient Old Testament text. You need to understand that the indictment is made very clear in the book of Romans in the New Testament. For all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. It says further in Romans chapter 6, For the wages of sin is death. <laughs> but check this out. The verse doesn't end there. It says, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's the indictment. You're a sinner. And the penalty is death. So instead of you paying that debt, I'm sending my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay it for you so that you can be free. Your debt can be paid. And you can be declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. So with their heads bowed and our eyes closed for just a moment this morning. There's no way I could possibly know in a 
group this size where each of you stand spiritually with God. I don't want to make any assumptions. I don't want to assume that because you're on a church membership list or you're sitting in a worship service that you are in a right relationship with God. You may be more like the people of Micah's day than you care to admit. That you're trying to manage for yourself your sin problem. Trying to do enough religious stuff. Trying to build a religious resume so that somehow, some way, you'll be acceptable to God. But the Bible's really clear that that is a bad plan. Because it tells us clearly, it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So if you're here today and you've never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to take that step of faith today. It's simply acknowledging that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that you cannot even on your best day, save yourself. Can't make yourself righteous enough. So you must trust in the righteousness of another. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be here today, you may be watching online and you would say, Pastor, I'm I'm more like the people of Micah's day than I'd like to admit. A lot of days I find myself kind of fed up with God. He doesn't seem to be ruling the universe in the way that I think he should. My life isn't working out the way that I'd hoped. I mean, any number of reasons that your fellowship with God is broken. I simply want to invite you to return. To repent and return in humility. Let's be a people who are committed to walk humbly with the Lord our God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for our time here. Lord, we acknowledge how desperately we need you. We need you most importantly for salvation, for redemption. Thanking you that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who desires, is holy, and wants to see wrongs rebuked and people restored. And we want to be part of that plan. So we give you all praise and honor and glory now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.